and one can see that in the, in, in one case maybe they were being slightly calorie restricted whereas in the other case maybe they were being a bit poisoned so the truth is probably halfway between right. so, i would also say that there's also some arguments that they were locked in cages so there's some uh you know mental you know stress there that wasn't properly you know doesn't reflect you know true you know base reality that's true but of course the control animals and the treated animals were both locked in cages so um one has to work quite hard to make an argument from that that says that the result of the experiments was it was not representative um so so yeah that doesn't look too good and of course we also have natural experiments in humans we have cultures in which people eat less the best known one is Okinawa, this island at the southern end of Japan, where indeed um, they have a culture of eating a lot less. That culture, incidentally, has completely evaporated since they discovered McDonald's and it's all gone to pot. But in, historically, um, they used to eat considerably less than mainland Japanese. They would have the same composition of the diet and, of course, largely the same genetics as mainland Japanese. But sure enough, they would live longer than mainland Japanese, even though, of course, mainland Japanese live a bit longer than, than your average Westerner. Um, so this sounds good. But if you look at the numbers, it's not very exciting. In fact, um, Okinawans would only live maybe less than two years longer than the mainland Japanese. So, of course, that's better than nothing. I'm certainly not knocking it, but I feel that it's absolutely critical to appreciate the magnitude of the benefit and therefore to understand that if we want to achieve more than that, we're going to have to do something other than calorie restriction. We're going to have to do something, something more elaborate. Of course, there's a great deal of, of um, interest these days in drugs or indeed genetic modifications that emulate calorie restriction. They essentially trick the organism into thinking that it's being starved when it isn't. And these are... I think of a good argument there that like, yeah, the maximal effect is just as good, if not worse, than just proper caloric restriction, which I think is a it, you know, it, very yeah, rational it, argument. It's definitely no better. And of course, it, we would expect it to be no better because the only reason that such a simple intervention as calorie restriction has any effect in the first place on such a complicated phenomenon as aging is that we have this kind of sleeping giant in the body, this machinery that's already there, encoded, waiting for calorie restriction to happen that responds to famine with the kind of apex of that response being things like the, um, the um, insulin IGF pathway or the sirtuins and which ha which fans out in downstream into all manner of different changes in gene expression that work that essentially um you know, modify the metabolic priorities of the organism in favor of more maintenance and against reproduction for example this machinery can be activated either by famine or by these emulations like rapamycin for example uh but you can't activate a sleeping giant unless that sleeping giant is actually there. So we would never expect these drugs or genetic manipulations to achieve significantly more than calorie restriction itself achieves in a given organism. Yeah, no, I think that's a, you know, a fair assessment where, you know, for most people where their diets are already really crappy, right? You know, intermittent fasting, you know, even for like fairly healthy people can have a lot of benefits. Um, and in terms of can we extend people, you know, lifespans 50%, uh, that seems to be out of scope. I mean, it seemed like, um, you know, the, the tactics of intermittent fasting aren't novel, right? Eat less is, you know, you, you would think that some, you know, monk tribe in, you know, India or something would have figured out that, hey, like we can actually extend out to 150 years, you know, just by intermittent fasting. 
But you know, with that said, I think, yeah. You got it. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the reason it's so important to put this across is that it does get quite scandalously swept under the carpet, even today, by a large number of very prominent and influential gerontologists. You know, some people have taken, have actually gone so far as to write that because we can get 40% increase in lifespan in mice, therefore it's extremely likely that in the short, in the near term, by similar means, we will get 40% increase in humans. And, you know, it's a complete... It's Which is silly, because like, I think with anyone knowing clinical trials, like mouse models translate, you know, do not, we're, we're a lot different from mice. Let's put it that way. It's even worse than that. I mean, sure, most things that work in mice don't work in humans. But generally, that's for reasons that could not have been anticipated in advance. This one has been anticipated in advance because it's completely obvious as a consequence of basic evolutionary theory um, found, uh, stemming from the simple and pretty damned unarguable fact that long famines are less frequent than short famines. Yeah, I think it's a fairly interesting argument. You, you, you approach it from just like evolutionary biology as opposed to sort of bottoms up, uh, which I thought was an interesting approach to thinking about uh, how, you know, weather patterns, how famine sort of correlates to fasting and, and how the periods of fat, you know, famines tend to be one year or two years long. So the benefits of potential fasting would be at the same order, All right. which I thought was interesting. I'm curious. I'm curious from the again from the evolutionary perspective. Like, there's a notion that the, the humans were never accustomed to three meals a day plus snacks, so that the baseline would be like the baseline human uh, in caveman times would be what we would consider today to be intermittent fasting or uh, like in a hunter gatherer society. There's like an abundance of food, scarcity of food, and that might not that might happen on a on a very like quick spiky basis and that that would be normal and then what we're doing now today is uh with with constant access to calories constantly having glucose and constantly firing an insulin response might essentially be uh some like building some toxicity like there might yeah, be poisoning ourselves yeah. sure that, i'm sure there's plenty of truth in that there's also however plenty of truth in some things that are kind of the opposite of that such as for example you know we know that calorie restricted animals are considerably less resistant to being cold they get they 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 don't recover too well some aspects of the immune system appear to be impaired the most the many aspects are improved you know so there's trade offs um and of course the boom and bust approach to eating has its own um problems you know, if you if, if if you if you eat massively for a week because you have just killed a lion or whatever, then you may end up actually doing damage because there's too much floating around in your body, and that damage may take a long time to go away, even during starvation. So yeah, I mean, there's trade-offs either way. Yeah, and I and I think our interest and our community's interest in intermittent fasting, as as we mentioned before, was the sort of performance, the data around performance around. Can we accelerate? Can we boost levels of brain-derived neurofactor, right? Which is correlated with dendritic growth, neuron growth, um, which you know brings us to the topic of like performance enhancement nootropics. Like, um, you know, obviously you spend a lot of your time thinking and, and pondering and and, and, and and sort of theorizing what to you know pour allocate resources into. Um, what is your personal regimen in terms of? You know, finding focus, improving your cognitive performance. Is there something special? Yeah, not really. I mean, it's not an area that I consider myself remotely expert on. I think my basic 
intuition about it is that, sure, there's plenty of value in exploring ways to improve our cognitive function, but that the likely um, benefits that we could accrue from pharmacological or other approaches to doing so kind of pale into insignificance compared to the improvements in our effective cognitive function that arise from new technologies, um, you know, the internet, whatever, you know. I feel that my cognitive ability to remember phone numbers for practical purposes is actually great, much greater than it was 20 years ago, whereas from a purely, you know, if I was deprived of my computer, my ability to remember phone numbers would be great deal worse. I probably know about a quarter as many phone numbers as I did 20 years ago. Um, you know, it, it, that's the way I tend to look at it. I think that it's kind of oversimplistic and probably um, um, counterproductive to actually view the body and the mind in isolation from the technology that we are so familiar with and have so readily available to enhance our functionality. What, what, I, what do you think of the notion that, you know, if you can increase the, you know, the, the RAM, the working memory of every human by like a, a couple percent, right? There's that notion of Metcalfe's law where, you know, in networking theory that the, the, the value of a network is exponential to the number of nodes in the network. Um, there's something interesting around like, like sort of the, the, the meta tool of increasing productivity as a whole, as a civilization to push, you know, on, on, on initiatives like SENS. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm all in favor of that kind of way of thinking, but I think it really comes back to my previous answer that yes, we know that, or we think it, it's definitely generally agreed that the increase in intelligence that's happened over evolutionary time through mammalian evolution is largely a result of simple increase in brain size, especially the neocortex. Um, there's not all that much increase in the, in the overall complexity of how the neocortex is put together. It's really just there's more of it. And so, yes, I mean, I think that that's a very reasonable hypothesis. But it still brings us back to the question of how should we actually achieve that increase in connectivity? And I believe that the best way to think about that question is to think about the brain in combination with the electronic tools that we have available to us rather than in isolation. I think that's particularly true at the moment with the fantastic breakthroughs that have been made in deep learning, in the ability to understand how to get how to write programs that can actually learn from uh, a large amount of data and gain sophisticated understanding. I'm sure you've both heard of DeepMind, the company that Google bought a couple of years ago, that um, first of all was able to um, uh, write a single program that mastered a wide range of very diverse video games just by playing itself a lot, uh, by, 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 by responding to, the, to what worked. I think the recent achievement was the the Go match, where uh, Go was considered to be you know an intractable game, a lot more you know exponentially more complex than chess, and uh, and this computer beat you know the, the human world champion. Absolutely, absolutely, and and the, uh, and the point is that a year beforehand, when the project when DeepMind began that project. You could ask any expert in computer game playing and you'd ask them, how long will it be before a computer can beat the top Go players in the world? And not one single expert would have given you a number less than 10 years. And it took one year. So, you know, sometimes breakthroughs happen faster than one expects. Sometimes they're slower, sometimes they're faster. Do you think that there will always be a special category of problems that only human minds can solve? No, I don't. I think that the nature of what makes a pro what makes something a problem 
is that it can be described, is that it can be actually specified, and that once it can be specified, the same kind of approaches to analyzing it, breaking it down, um, you know, figuring out how to address it can be encoded in silicon just as much as in, the, in neurons. Now, that's not the same question as whether there are any types of function that only human minds can do and computers can't. Um, that I'm not so sure about. It's, it's a much more open question. Yeah, one of the one of the questions is like, would it, can a computer be able to seduce, or can a computer be able to make art? Like, can like these fundamentally human things? Right. And so I think again, we can certainly say that computers will be able to achieve some approximation of the of human behavior in these regards. But when we're talking about things which are not which are which are intrinsically not supposed to be defined precisely the way a problem is. Um, you know, there we, it's kind of a moving target from the point of view of the computer. And I think it remains to be seen whether computers will be able to do these things. I think it remains even more to be seen whether we will feel that we want computers to do these things. I think, you know, when I worked in artificial intelligence research before I was a biologist, I was doing so because I wanted to solve a problem, namely the problem that so many of us have to spend so much of our time doing things that we wouldn't be doing unless we were being paid for them. Um, and, you know, therefore we want computers to be smart enough to do tedious stuff. But I don't really see that there's much, um, much of a market for computers that can play football. <laughs> Oh, I'm surprised you you're 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 not making a stronger statement around like you know art. Like I think that you know art is a moving target, as you mentioned, but uh, it's a, almost like predicting taste and you know taste of you know f you know style or taste of you know medium, and those those can be you know computable, right? Like you can get a sense of like okay, this is the this is like the trends of art. We can we can extrapolate that you know some beautiful art is you know that that, that uh, is interesting to a number of people is sort of sits in this category and then we can generate that. I still think it, it boils down to like with art, it's like what we talked about before with like with cooking, if you have robots that can cook everything, then like the finest of finest food would be made by a human. That would be like the most, the best service. Like if computers can make the most technically creatively incredible art, you're still going to want to have like human art is still going to have a place. Yeah, it's, it's kind of whether it's kind of, kind of whether the waiter is smiling when they bring it to you, rather than so much what the food actually tastes like. I guess one quick one quick response I, I would say to the like uh, yeah, our smartphone is has increased the real ability to memorize phone numbers more than uh, any more than anything else. Like we should really think about technology. I would say why not both? Like why not technology and improve that it's not and improve our our biological abilities. Like it's not necessarily an either or proposition. Like if I'm using technology, I also want to have the the best cognitive abilities and the best technology. That that would be my response. I, I completely agree. I, I, I completely agree. And really, to my mind, it's the same as the dichotomy between calorie restriction and regenerative medicine of the sort that we work on. I absolutely don't think that they are mutually exclusive. But nevertheless, it is important to look at the relative potential of each of the two approaches simply in order to set priorities for research expenditure and effort and so on. If we 
think that calorie restriction, for example, were able to double our lifespan, then it would make sense to put most of our effort into developing calorie restriction memetics and not much effort into regenerative medicine. Whereas if we decide that calorie restriction is only going to give us a year or two, then it makes more sense to put some money into memetics of calorie restriction, but most of our money into regenerative medicine. And I think the same applies if we look at enhancement of cognitive function versus enhancement of the tools that we have that uh, practically enhance cognitive function. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. if, if, if given yeah. infinite resources and infinite creativity, we, we hit everything. And, and it's a, there's a priority that we can, you know, each individual out there can decide how to the best, you know, allocate and prioritize. Um, yeah. And I do want to wrap up here, but I want to leave you the last word. Um, any last thoughts that you want to pass along to our audience here? Sure, absolutely. The real thing that I want to emphasize is that there is only one thing at the moment holding back the march towards a post-aging world. When I started in this field 20 years ago, there were three problems. One was that nobody had an actual cogent plan for developing anti-aging technology that would actually work. And I fixed that in one kind of eureka moment in the summer of 2000. The second problem was that the um, scientific community were pretty skeptical about all of this and there wasn't enough enthusiasm on the part of world-leading experts in these areas to actually get on and do this and implement these ideas even once I had set them out. That had to be changed. And again, that was pretty easy to change. It turned out that there were a lot of very smart and visionary scientists out there, even though there were some scientists who were very vocally skeptical. Nevertheless, there were plenty who were not. And so certainly by 10 years ago, um, we were in a position where all of the relevant areas were populated by world-leading scientists who were totally hard to trust. So the only problem that remained, and it still remains very severely, is financial resources to actually enable those scientists to get on and do the thing they want to do. And it is really bad news. I want to put numbers on this in order to close, because the fact is, at the moment, Sense Research Foundation has a budget of only $4 million a year. Even if we could put one more digit on that, even if we could make it $40 million or so, then I believe that we could go three times faster. Now, that number, that factor of three, of course, will diminish over time because progress begets progress and begets credibility and so on. But integrating all of that, adding it all up, I, I believe that adding that kind of additional amount like tomorrow to the budget of this work would literally take one whole decade off the time frame before we actually have these technologies available in the clinic for everyone to actually benefit from. And that means pretty much half a billion lives that are riding on that tiny amount of money. So that's really what I want to emphasize to your audience and to everybody that your audience knows who is wealthier than they are and so on. Great. Yeah. If, if those that are listening have uh, ability to donate to a nonprofit, check out sends.org. We'll have the link out there and, and support Aubrey and his team's uh, awesome work. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was really interesting. It's cool to have an opportunity to speak with Aubrey DeGray. He's been a, a big person in the space for quite a while. Yeah, um, I think there's two. I mean, I think we focused on two interesting areas where we had a bit of a, a debate amongst you know amongst peers really. Um, one, which is about this notion of focusing on technology to enhance our abilities versus focusing on our innate abilities ourselves. Curious to hear you know, your oh, thoughts. Oh yeah, the there. point where he's saying I have a smartphone that's helped my my real memory 
so much more than anything else I could have done. Like a good night's sleep or a nootropic is going to improve my memory by a certain amount, but literally having a smartphone in my pocket at all, at all times has much more of a real effect, which I think is valid. But I, and then my response to him was, well, why not both? Like if I'm using technology, I also want to have the best cognitive ability. If I'm writing code or using my computer for different things throughout the day, I want to have the best computer, but I also want to have the best, most productive flow state as I'm using that technology. Yeah. If you think about and, like the, just the math of it, right? Uh, if technology can 10x your abilities, well, why not increase the base more? So if I'm 10% smarter through nootropics or other regimens, that's 1.1 1. 1 right. times 10. That's 11 times smarter sure. versus 1 times 10, which is 10 times smarter. And so it, I think that there's uh, technology, I would say, just compounds your baseline abilities well then, right? but then so his you response your base on abilities yeah. you can enhance your and i agree and then his response his response is okay but okay i give you a hundred million dollars where do you invest it do you invest it into technologies or do you invest it in uh, like technologies uh, if i give you a hundred million dollars you invest it where do you in, allocate in tech, where do you allocate do you invest it in like better smartphones or better tech tools better ai or do you in, in, invest it in being able to enhance a person's biological abilities uh well, first of all, I think it's a false dichotomy because, yeah, what if you implant a computer chip? It's kind of, it's kind of both. But I would say more to the point. What what I wish I'd said back on the, on the discussion was there's a certain category of problems that only humans are solving right now. Where if you make computers 10x or 100x better, there's still a huge class of problems that only human thought is working on. Like in a sense, lab, like you still like you can have deep learning attacking a problem, but you still have a human operator. For a lot of things, you still have a human operator that's actually solving the highest order bit still. And so if you can multiply that highest order bit by like, you know, 1.1, you get that 10% boost on that highest order bit. It's also good that you can do way better rote work, that you can do really good AI work, and that that's getting better, you know, following Moore's law, it's getting a lot better, a lot faster. But it's like, for that, it's not totally fungible. Those like mental cycles that oh, all these human problems. Okay, you can either increase by one point one or you can increase by ten. I'll take ten. It's like well, that one point one is attacking a, a special set of like problems that humans are thinking about, right. which computers are not yet like totally solved. Yeah, I think that's a, it. Harkens back to our initial notions around creating meta tools through nootropics, through biohacking, to accelerate the productivity of as many people as possible, and these these gains are going to be multiplied across the network. So I think, you know, in short, I don't think, you know, Aubrey would necessarily disagree. I think it's all about uh, having as many approaches as as many smart minds attacking these problems. Um, And we can have an open debate. And it's really just almost capitalism or just research funding is just a competition of itself. Which ideas are the best? We'll just eventually win through capital markets. So, We'll let the ideas and approaches almost compete for themselves. Yeah. Um, the second the second thing that we discussed was was calorie restriction, intermittent fasting, and effects on longevity. Yeah. So you know, from my personal perspective, I think for a lot of our community members, we looked at intermittent fasting from a performance perspective, and I thought it was cool that we all had pretty, you know, we're in agreement there in terms of the biomarker benefits as well as the cognitive benefits, which is interesting and i think that uh what is more open to discussion and debate is this notion of how effective is caloric restriction or intermittent fasting for longevity um clearly you know uh, aubrey is uh 
looks at other approaches as more fruitful. Um, but I think what is it is interesting is that one of his co-authors, one of his previous research associates, Michael Ray, is a big proponent of caloric restriction, and you know we'll have him on soon and 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 give the counterpoint uh, to to Arby's argument around uh, caloric restriction as a longevity enhancer. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know the the data is the data, and I think that it is. Uh, you know, still, still an open area of research, right? As 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 uh as we mentioned on the on the discussion, you know, one monkey trial showed longevity benefits uh, in Wisconsin, and the NIH National Institute of Aging trial uh, showed uh, negligible benefits for longevity, and there was a lot of you know discussion around what were the differences there. Well, uh. The one in NIA, the, the null results uh, group, had you know whole foods, more natural diet versus uh, the Wisconsin uh, cohorts, which had more artificial, precisely dosed nutrients. So there's some notion around could the nutrition factor uh, be a cofactor or a confounding variable. And another interesting point was uh, to discuss the results was the notion of being in a cage, right? Like, I think. Yeah, you mentioned um, that. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, that's like not a natural environment. And could a lot of the benefits of caloric restriction be uh, wiped away by being in a cage? That's beyond, hey, we're, we're putting this in, a, in both everyone in the control, but maybe like the benefits of caloric restriction is just like totally wiped away by like the mental stress of being in the cage. Right. That like ha- being exercising, being active perhaps enhances the improvement that you might get from or just, uh, Or just enables that channel to actually function. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because it's 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 a well-known phenomenon that zoo animals locked up have show weird behavior they're like pacing around depressed and have like just die early um and i think that you know the, the most compelling human trial is like the okinawan population as as we were talking about um i think the the numbers i saw were that uh on average the japanese population had less than 10 per 10 100,000 that could reach above 100 years old. And in Okinawa, it was over like 30 to 40 out of 100. So four times more, you know, since, you know, 100 plus year old people, which is, you know, for some, it might be like, oh, that's that's not a lot. But for others, you know, if you can quad your chance of potentially being 100 plus years old, I think that's a awesome potential thing to look at. So I think it's, again, how do you weigh the cost benefits if uh, for long for longevity purposes? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you know, uh, to wrap up here, uh, you know, we're going to have more interesting guests all the time, uh, send us your suggestions to who we should bring on. Uh, you know, I think Aubrey de Grey is, is obviously an interesting character in the space and we'll have many more, uh, follow us on SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, and Google play. Yeah. Thanks everybody. And before we forget, uh, we have thinking caps oh, for yeah. people that ask awesome questions. So Jack, uh, awesome question around the mitochondrial DNA. I think that you know pushed him a little bit. And, and as as thinkers, as independent thinkers, we should just constantly push and 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 make sure that all claims are substantiated. Cheers.